0: Well, good morning again, and uh, if you're joining us online, thank you so much for doing so. I was thinking uh, just before I came up here, uh, this is totally anecdotal, but uh, uh, to my, in my circles, uh, so many more people are either dealing with COVID or quarantining with the possibility of COVID. And I was just thinking about those of you maybe that are online, that are isolated from your families, and maybe this is almost kind of like uh, one little feeling of normal for a very hard time for you, I hope in a particular way today is a blessing uh, to you. So, thanks for coming everyone, and we do get to open God's word together. I'm gonna begin on a little bit of a, a downer note by asking the question, what is the problem with dissension amongst God's people? Like, what's the real problem? with it. We all would say it's kind of a bummer. Uh, it's it's unpleasant. We we don't we don't like it. If you've ever been a part of a local church where there was a kind of hissy fit of some kind that happened, then you know this. It is sad, it is disappointing, it's disillusioning. These people I you know went to Sunday school with and worship with, and now we don't like each other and occasionally we'll have people that will land here at Bethel Church. And they're coming from a cage match at another church. And you can just see it written on their face, like there's, there's a sadness and a, uh, I don't know, like a, a sense of, of missing. They come bruised and they're battered, and spiritually they are running on fumes. And so we look at those things, and if you've ever been part of something like that, you know how hard it is. And we all would say, that's, that's terrible. like. That's bad, we don't, you know, we obviously don't want that here, but we don't want that anywhere. Dissension in the church. But the consequences or the real problem with dissension in the church are not the things I just talked about, like how we feel about it and how hard it is and, and etc. What Paul has in mind now as we wrap up this whole section, starting in Romans 14, is not about like my feelings about Uh, having a hard time at a a church or, you know, the ill will that I have. That's not at all what he has in view. His primary concern is, well, actually, I'm going to see if you can figure it out when I read the text. What is his primary concern in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6? And again, these two verses wrap up a section that began in 14, verse 1, in which we have seen Paul dealing with how Christians should handle non-essential disagreements and to get along in the church. What we have seen is that there there was in the Roman church these two basic groups of people who didn't like each other and were uh, condescending to each other and judging each other. And they weren't doing it because of their theology of the virgin birth or atonement or something, it was a secondary kind of thing that they disagreed on. For some of them, these were really important matters, and for some of them, they were not so important matters. For some, it was a measure of godliness. For others, it was not. But how do we get along when you put all these people, you know, we're all in the sandbox of Bethel Church together. How do we play well in the sandbox? How do we get along when there are so many things that we see differently? And what Paul has urged is he has urged love as more important than liberty, and consideration for one another as more important than winning the argument. And what he has said about the kingdom of God is that it is what we should really care about, is the deep, the great doctrines and truths that unite us. Save your argument and your passion for those things, not for the lesser, secondary, minor things. And to this now he adds in verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Now, what does it mean? What's he talking about here? Well, you'll notice he starts off, May the, and it, it sounds kind of like a prayer. And it kind of sounds like a vision. In fact, some people call it a, 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 a dream prayer or a wish prayer. It's really kind of both. He is both praying and in the prayer, putting before the, the church at Rome, hey, this is what this should look like. This is why this is so important. And here we get a glimpse into really the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, uh, I have to believe what he says here in verses five and six is what's been in the back of his mind as he's had to talk about vegetable eating and uh, kosher food and Sabbath keeping and wine drinking and these other things that he's talked about uh, that are not really the big thing for him, but here now at the end, he gets to what his real concern was. In fact, some of you, I think, might kind of wonder about this. Like, he wrote... Uh, chapter 14, all of this space, talking about unity in the church. And you might, in heaven, I can see some of you possibly in heaven going, if you make it. (laughs) That was a joke. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, they say the three things you'll be surprised about when you get to heaven, who's there, who's not there, and that you're there. Uh, So uh, we'll all be amazed at the grace of God uh, should we land on heaven's shores. But, I can see some of you maybe uh, running into the Apostle Paul, and uh, after this series in particular, saying something like this to Paul. Hey, Paul, I got a question for you. When you were writing that letter to the Romans, do you remember the letter to the Romans? Yeah, I remember the letter to the Romans. When you were writing that letter to the Romans and you finished chapter 13, which was about Christian citizenship and government, why didn't you keep writing more about that stuff? Because frankly, in my time on earth, That's the stuff that people were really interested in. Politics, and power, and taxes, and frankly, I didn't appreciate what you said about paying taxes, but I'm gonna move on. Uh, But all that to say, people get into that stuff. They watch hours of cable news about that stuff. They listen to hours of talk radio about that stuff. And they argue with family and friends at Thanksgiving about government and Politics, and you only did seven verses on that? But then you talk about Christian liberty and disagreements and unity in the church, and you went on and on and on, and that obliged our pastor, Pastor Steve DeWitt. Anybody seen him around here? Uh, He just, he had to keep going and going because you wrote so much about it. We would have preferred much more on politics and less on pig eating. So why so much on Christian liberty, Paul? Huh? What do you have to say? I think it is an interesting point to consider when you look at the letter as a whole. I mean, what does it mean when the Apostle Paul's concerns are not aligned with our concerns? Who do you think might be missing the point? Twenty-nine verses on love and liberty. He gives three whole chapters of First Corinthians to the same subject, and then things like politics, a eh, eh, little bit, a little bit about that. There is essentially nothing about sports fandom. There is nothing about technology. There is not one verse about pandemics, uh, but there's huge portions about Christians loving one another. And overcoming differences of opinion and unifying on the gospel of Jesus. And so what I want to say is let the apostolic volume of verses that we have seen here tell you something about, in the eyes of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he sees as being really important, which are often the things that we don't think are so important, and the things that he doesn't think are that important seem to be the things that we often think are the really important things. He's gone a long time on this. And Pastor Steve, you've gone a long time on this. But now you know why I've gone a long time on this. I'm following the lead of the Apostle Paul. So give me a break, all right? Now, let's get into the text as, as, as it's written here. And notice that he says here, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Now, if you've been following along here, that should ring a bell in your mind. Endurance, endurance and encouragement. Where have I heard that before? Well, we just saw it last week, didn't we? Last week, the prior verse says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so last week's message was all about the role of the Old Testament in the life of the Christian, if you recall. And now we get to this verse, and he says the same exact words. They're the same words in the the English, they are the same words in the Greek that this was written in originally. In verse four, it is the Old Testament scriptures that provide us endurance and encouragement. In verse five, it is God who is the source of endurance and encouragement, and so which is it? Is God the source of endurance and encouragement, or are the scriptures the source of endurance and uh, and encouragement, and the answer is what class? Both, both, and why both? Because the scriptures are the expression of the character of God. We read the Bible, and this is itself the 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 character of God on display, written down in words for us, and so the, the 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 Bible of God is enduring and encouraging, and the God of the Bible is enduring and encouraging, and I'll never get that right second service, but I came out nicely there, okay? Both. And that's why we read the Bible, to find, about, find out about God, and that's why we learn about God, to find out about how we may endure and encourage. And I just think, I'll pause for a moment, In you know, is this the season where we need a little bit of endurance and a little bit of encouragement? And maybe you come to church and you're like, I need to be encouraged today. Pastor Steve, you need to encourage me. I got nothing for you. But there's a Bible that's got something for you, and there's a God who's got something for you, because he is himself a God of endurance and encouragement for his people. Now you say, that was a good point, Pastor Steve, and indeed it was. But what does it look like when God is causing his people to endure and God is by his Spirit nourishing and encouraging his people. Like, what does that look like? Is it just sort of a feeling we have, or does it actually express itself in the congregation in tangible ways? And that's where these verses share for us what it looks like when a congregation is being nourished by the Word of God and by the character of God, what happens amongst us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you notice to live in such harmony with one another harmony isn't that a nice word i've known some girls named harmony i've always liked that name we we had a visitor last week and her daughter's name was serenity and i just thought oh it's so nice isn't there are certain words that just bring peace hearing them and i think harmony is one of those Words Who doesn't like harmony? We all like harmony, and typically we think about harmony in terms of music, right? You have a melody, and then you have a harmony. And the harmony is the corresponding complementary note to the, to the melody. And when you have somebody who is doing the melody on an instrument or singing, and somebody who is doing really good on the, or the melody, and somebody doing really good on the harmony at the same time, what do we call that? Beautiful, right? Beautiful. People spend a lot of money on concert tickets to hear really tight harmonies, and they will buy albums and uh, you know music and because uh, they want to hear. When we hear that tight harmony, it's just there's something appealing to it. It just sounds so good. Have you ever heard bad harmony? If not, come sit by me on a Sunday morning because i, I don 't know why, but I have always I always try to sing the harmony, and I am not very good at it. like every third note roughly maybe is around where it 's supposed to be, but then it 's two or three notes searching for the next one. Anybody married to somebody like that? Okay, right here in the church okay yeah i 'm not good at i 'm not good at it, but I like it. I try okay Bad harmony is when notes are not complementing each other or corresponding to each other, they are, they are in dissonance from each other. You hear it and you're like, ew, it's like you know, fingernails on the, on the chalkboard. There's something about that sound that kind of grates on us. Now obviously Paul here is not talking about the choir in the church, he's talking about the relationships in the church. In fact, the word here, the harmony word, is actually a word for the mind. It's a thinking word. And we should be glad that it is a thinking word. What if it was a feeling word? And what if harmony in the church was based upon how we feel all the time about each other? How well would we harmonize with one another? Not very well. How does it go in marriage when your unity is based upon your feelings? It doesn't last very long. How much better it is to be a church that our unity is creedal. It is grounded in what we know and what we believe. Our unity is around a, 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 a corpus of truth, a doctrine, a gospel. It is, we are unified in a person, in Jesus Christ. And that unity is not uh, uh, subject to feelings. Like I'm unified with Jesus when I feel like I'm unified with Jesus and I'm unified with you when I feel like I'm unified with you, no. I am unified with Jesus because my faith and trust is in him, no matter how I feel about it. And I am unified with my brothers and sisters because we are all baptized by the Spirit into one body. In fact, it's it's been well said, we don't create unity. Like, messages that say we need to establish unity in this church are missing the point. We are unified in Jesus, we are all one in Christ. Unity in the church is not creating unity, it is displaying it, it is treating one another as if we actually are one in Jesus Christ. So what's a good word for a group of people who in their mind and heart trust and believe the same truths and doctrines and then they live life with each other like they actually do believe the same things. What's a good word for that? I say harmony is a pretty good word. Harmony is a good word. To live in such harmony with one another. Please note that Paul doesn't say agreeing with each other in everything. He doesn't say that. In fact, this is a whole chapter about things that we don't agree on. It's it's not that we are to have unanimity in Christ. That would be impossible. But we can have unity in Christ in spite of differences in secondary things. We can have harmony with one another even though we disagree with one another. And maybe some things that we say are kind of important things, but not, not ultimately important things, not gospel essential things. We unify despite disagreements. I like what one man said this does not mean that they should all come to the same conclusion. That is obvious from his discussion of the weak and the strong. The conscience of each is to guide the conduct of that person. It is unity of perspective that is desired. And that perspective is that of Christ Jesus, our model for Christian conduct. Think as he does. Take on his values and priorities. As each member of the church draws closer to Christ, we will at the same time draw closer to other members of the body. The experience of Christian unity produces a symphony of praise to God in which each voice blends with all the others to the glory of God. Now, I've got a challenging question for, I'm going to say some of you, probably not all of you, but for some of you. Can you get along with people that you disagree with? There are some people who cannot do that. You gotta agree with me on everything or you're just wrong, right? Can you get along with people that you don't necessarily agree with everything? Now, most people would say to that question, well, that depends, right? Are we talking about preferences? Are we talking about politics? Are we talking about essential oils? It depends. Well, what is Paul talking about? Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What is the parameter for the Christian's heart of who I welcome into fellowship? Question, do we need to be more spiritual than God? More separated than God? Because this verse says, whoever God welcomes into his heart, we have an obligation to welcome into our heart. And I think that's a great line in the sand for, you know, who I view as somebody that I need to be kind of loving and being unified with, in harmony with, is, are they in harmony with God? Because if they are in harmony with God, if they are going to be accepted into heaven, if God's going to welcome them into his house then who am I to be more spiritual than God, more separatistic than God, and treat that person like something less than a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Did you get that? I'd like that one to stick in your mind. So what are the requirements that God has for fellowship with a sinner? We must repent of our sins. We must turn in faith to Jesus Christ. We must see that death on the cross as being in our place. He died for our our sins. And when I turn in faith to Jesus, the Bible says that God forgives my sins, that I am granted the gift of eternal life, that I am adopted into the family of God, and now I have brothers and sisters who are also in the family of God. And that's who Paul's saying, harmonize with them. He doesn't say, agree with everything. It's not going to happen. But when we agree on the essentials and that person is a brother or sister, now I have a responsibility relationally to harmonize with them. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus' arms are wide open to people of all kinds of varying preferences? Aren't you glad that your preferences didn't keep Jesus from welcoming you? His arms are wide open to people of all kinds of race and ethnicities, all kinds of traditions and backgrounds, the condition being repentance and faith in him alone for salvation. It doesn't matter what the sin is of your past, what the, you know, the, what the, the mark against you, the baggage that you bring. You could be a chronic liar, a chronic thief. You could be an adulterer, a murderer, pick your sin. But when we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, God welcomes us into fellowship with him. And perhaps that's why Paul's next point is that our harmony, notice what the verse says, should be in accord with Christ Jesus. Now, I drive Honda. It has nothing to do with that, okay? In accord with Christ Jesus. What is he talking about there? I think he is saying here that our harmony with one another should be like the example of Jesus himself. Again, would you agree? We don't need to be more spiritual than Jesus. We don't need to be more godly than Jesus. If Jesus welcomes somebody, well, then I should harmonize with them relationally or strive to. Now, we live in a day where there's a lot of confusion on this because there are so many people and groups and churches and denominations, et cetera, that tag the word Christian onto their counseling ministry, you know, onto their coffee shop. <laughs> you know, you see the, that little tag Christian, and we could somehow think, well, as long as they, you know, have the tag Christian, now I, uh, this is somebody that I must, of course, believe is actually an Orthodox Christian. Is that the way that this works? No. As John wrote, they that have the Son have life. They that have not the Son have not life. And so we don't become sort of like mindless um, autotrons who just sort of, oh, you say you're a Christian. It doesn't matter what you believe. No, if, if that's what you got from Romans 14, you have not heard what I've been trying to say here. It is not the primary things that we harmonize differences in. Those have got to be the gospel. In fact, John writes this. You want to talk about, we might view this as rude, but here's what John writes in 2 John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. That's kind of like throwing down, isn't it, John? And you see how the apostles, read Galatians 1 with Paul and the Judaizers, When it comes to the essential gospel, there is not one budging, there is no compromising, there is no welcoming anybody who plays with the essential gospel. Let's make that clear. We're not talking about that. We should avoid those people. But Paul is not writing to the city of Rome, he is writing to the church of Rome. He has written this to brothers and sisters. He is urging them to get along and to harmonize across differences in these secondary matters and welcome into our hearts anyone that Jesus welcomes in. So again, I wanna ask the question, can you harmonize relationally with a Christian with whom you have agreement in the gospel but significant disagreements in secondary matters? Can you do that? And if you can't, you're never gonna get along in a small group. You're probably never gonna get along in a church. You're gonna constantly be separating from everybody who's got it wrong. On all the secondary matters, you have to believe like me in everything. And there are people like that. I, uh, you know, over the years, uh, they'll float into our church and try to convince me to believe like them in every th- possible thing. And they want the whole church to conform to their way of thinking in all the secondary and tertiary area, uh, areas. And then when we don't, they leave and that's fine. That's best probably. Romans 14 has provided a guide for us, especially verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I hope that verse lingers on in your, in your remembrance of uh, Romans 14, because it's essentially saying what we have said here over the years, and that is that we've got to keep the main thing the main thing and to make sure that no minor thing becomes a main thing. And to add to that, the more that I am enraptured with, loving, treasuring, living for, passionate about the main thing, the less likely that a minor thing is going to displace the main thing. And the main thing in the church, and the main thing here at Bethel Church, is God, through his son Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, Creating a redemptive community for his glory forever. That is the main thing. It is the gospel, which we went through Romans 1 through 11, where he does the deep dive on what is the gospel. That is what is the main thing. And I just want to urge us as a church to allow those things to be the things that we get, you know, we're ready to go to war about and that we're passionate about and to keep the lesser things in their proper place. If I could illustrate it another way. You know, when Jesus is the son of the church, S-U-N, like the solar system, when Jesus is the son of a church, all the planets find their proper place and orbit. And here we are all, you know, you know there's Mercury, and there's Neptune, and there's Venus, and Venus isn't colliding with Earth, and Mars isn't running into, you know, uh, Jupiter and everything sort of goes well when the sun, with its gravitational pull, is keeping everything else in its proper place. But if you try with your planet to start orbiting around Venus, your life's gonna go nutso. And your relationships and your faith, you make something else the the important thing. Or in a church, friends, listen to me. There are so many things that threaten to become the thing that the local church is about that is something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Lip service to that, but the passion flows for the secondary thing. And that now rises and displaces in the heart and the the philosophy of the church. Jesus and the glory of God and the gospel and as a pastor, I feel like I'm constantly, it's like my old basketball days where I'm constantly playing defense all the time because people are saying, no, oh, we gotta go this way. No, 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 no. We're not gonna let that into the paint. No, we gotta go this way. No, 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 no. This is Jesus here. Nothing's gonna get there. I'm getting old and my thighs can't handle it anymore. And so in a teaching series like this, I can say, let's stop trying to make something else the main thing. Even as we harmonize in spite of differences in the other things. When you see a church or you see an individual living for a a professing Christian, living for something other than Jesus in his glory, I want you to look at that and say, oh, look, their life is orbiting around Neptune. They are sacrificing the brilliant, glorious thing for a lesser thing. And Jesus is the effulgent glory of God and must be for the church, the center of why we do what we do. And Romans 14 has been essentially describing what is a theologically mature Christian look like. They understand from Scripture and the example of Jesus what's really important in life and in Christian faith. And this keeps them from being sectarian in the church and having little groups like the junior high lunchroom where this group is here, and we're about this, and we're about that. The opposite of this maturity is tribalism in the church. And Bethel Church is a big church. There is a lot of opportunity for tribalism here. Little subgroups that form around some shared passion that is other than Jesus. Jesus. You spend time in churches, you can kind of identify them, even in the commons after the services. Oh, look, over there, there's the homeschool group. Look over there, there's the recycle group. Up there in the balcony, there's the anti-vaxxer group. Over there, there's the political activist group. And those people over there, those are the Dutch people. But when the church, when it looks like a junior high uh, lunchroom, what's going on in the church? The people of the church have lost their primary passion for Jesus, and they are allowing a secondary thing to be the thing around which they coalesce. Don't tribalize our church. Don't tribalize your life. And this is hard because birds of a feather flock together, right? It takes a conscious effort to get out of my little, you know, uh, cool table and to engage with other people that I know also share Jesus and a passion for him and to harmonize with them. I should have entitled this, don't turn our church into a junior high uh, lunchroom. That's essentially the point. Don't tribalize the church. Because that kind of a church vibe is much different than what Paul now describes in his exhortation. That together, see it, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Together with one voice. What's that sound like? Easy question. It sounds like a? Okay, not so easy at the first service. It sounds like a choir, right? Multiple voices singing together. You know, if you ever hear a really, really, really like super professional type choir, you would, you would, you would swear that there's only one voice. They're so precise in the way that they sing and dictate and uh, things I don't even understand. Uh, But you'll think, this is like, I I hear one voice, but then you hear a boh and you hear a hoh and you hear all these things in between. You're like, I know there's more than one voice in this, but I would swear there's only one voice because they are so attuned to one another, it kind of sounds like one voice. And that is the sense of Romans 14 and 15. That the unity within the church, that the the vibe and the culture of the relationships in the church should be such that we are almost like a choir. You think about the the Romans uh, church that we've learned about. You got people from a Jewish background, you got people from a Gentile background, you got people that, that practice Levitical uh, things in their in their growing up, you had people that have no idea about that. You had some people that they tried to obey the Ten Commandments, you had other people that tried to disobey the Ten Commandments. And all these people now mash together in one local church. That's the church at Rome that he's writing to. We've learned so much about them. And in spite of the diversity of backgrounds, in spite of the diversity of, of uh, ethnicity, despite the political differences and the, and the secondary lifestyle differences and the this and the that, in spite of all that, Paul says, take all that diversity and rather than viewing it as a weakness, see it as a strength and come together around Jesus with one voice. Glorify God together. I, re- I remember many years ago, my very first ever trip that I that I took to Israel. I went with my brother Scott. It was just the two of us. We went on this tour there, and uh, we we got to Nazareth. You know, you go to these places; it's so exciting. Like, oh, it's Bethlehem and Jerusalem, and so here we are in Nazareth, and we were staying at some hotel, and and uh, so he and I decided to go, you know, adventuring, wandering a little bit, and the hotel was on a, a, a kind of like a cliff that overlooks. Nazareth, And I remember we went walking, and we come across uh, what looked like an ancient church. And uh, we go into the church, and there's a chapel in the church. And lo and behold, we come upon a tour group from Korea. Korean Presbyterians were there. And as we came up, they started to sing, in Korean, how great thou art. Now this is one of these uh, stone, you know, rock, and so it's just like reverberating, and that's why people sing in places like that. It sounds so cool. And so uh, we stood there, and they kind of looked at us, and they were singing, you know, I wouldn't even try to sing it, because I don't know Korean, but uh, we were listening and just enjoying it, and so we decided, let's, let's sing with them. So we looked at them, they looked at us, we kind of nodded, and my brother and I, we cut out in, in English, Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. And they were, you know, And there we are together, them in Korean, us in English, you know, and we are singing praise to God. Now, do I have differences with Korean Presbyterians? I'm not an expert in Korean Presbyterian uh, theology and church practice, but I know that I would probably not agree with some of the practice. I love, hey, love the Presbyterians, got bookshelves filled with Presbyterian theologians, etc. but I got some d- issues, dis- differences with the, the, the Korean Presbyterians. Do I understand their language? No. Have I ever been to Korea? No. Do I like curry in my food? No. But did we sing praise to God that day together? Yes. And in spite of the differences, in that one magical moment, it was very special. And here I am 25 years later, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. That is the power, friends, of unity in Christ. It is not unanimity in Christ. There are no doubt things that you prefer and maybe even believe in secondary matters. You would disagree with me. That is okay. But what is at stake here is not winning the argument on the secondary thing, but the outward display of our unity for the glory of God. This is what Paul has in mind as he's writing all of this. He's not like, I'm really going to get these people not to eat pig anymore or eat pig or, you know, Sabbath or not Sabbath. That's not what he's primarily concerned about. He is caring about the glory of God, that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is not to say that God's glory is dependent upon our unity because God's glory is infinite, it is eternal, it is not uh, whimsically dependent upon our frailties in some way. We do not add to the glory of God by being unified. But what we do is we display the glory of God. In the world that is fractured, fighting, arguing, no unity, of heart in the world around us. In fact, think about this, friends. Our world is obsessed with diversity right now, is it not? Diversity has gotta be one of the top 20 words of the last 10 years. Diversity, 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 diversity. Obsessed with diversity. They go about it in a humanistic way, somewhat similar to the Tower of Babel where those people decided to build a a tower to their own glory and to say, look what we can do. In our culture today, that's similarly what diversity is. And yet, in spite of that, it never works. And our world is as divided right now as it has ever been. Hello, church. Do we have an opportunity here? Is there a little or a massive opportunity that we have right now in the day that we're living in, can we get before the world a display of harmony in spite of our differences? Harmony for the sake of Jesus. Harmony showing the glory of God in the way that we treat one another and talk to one another and communicate on media, social media and otherwise with one another. Can we, can we for the glory of God and the sake of Jesus, set aside the secondary things and display unity that the world craves but cannot accomplish, As one historian theologian writes, if their community life was harmonious, writing about the Roman church, God would be glorified by their united worship and united witness. Such a united witness at the heart of the Roman Empire would be an incomparable factor in the furtherance of the gospel. How did that first century church turn the world upside down as they did? It was their united worship and their united witness, as Bruce says here, and I put in my title. You know, the world, when they see a local church and, and they hear about what's going on in the local church or they observe it in their social media feed and they see people bickering with one another and fighting about one another and seemingly in their, in their communication caring super big about the same things that the world cares about, do they, do they look at that and go, wow, look the glory of God? No. They think that church is like every social club, every uh, you know, family gathering. It's, it's, it's basically, there's nothing different there. Because what's going on in the way that they treat one another is the same thing that's going on in the PTO, in the HOA, in the politics and everything else right now. There is no witness for the glory of God when the church looks like the world. But when we, in Jesus, for his sake, willingly harmonize with people that we have differences of opinion with in the secondary things, but we come together in love and in a one-voice worship as an act of witness to the world, now the world looks at that and they can't explain it away. It bears witness to the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus. And friends, in all my life, There has never been a better moment for the harmony of the church to witness to the reality of a risen Savior and the glory of God than the days that we are living in right now. Can we set aside the secondary things? Can we guard our mouth and our fingers on the computer and our phones and think about, is this gonna draw people into the glory of God and an understanding of Jesus? Is this gonna bear witness to the reality of a risen Savior? Is this gonna make the world go, now that's something different that I don't see in all the other things that I'm looking at. And if it doesn't do that, don't do it. I just wanna say, shut up. Or stop that stuff. If you want to say something, join the choir. (laughs) Work on the harmony. Because the melody is the gospel of Jesus. Sing the melody. Sing the harmony. And let's be a church that with one voice witnesses to the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus. That's the point. I hope you got it today.